Indonesia, like many countries, had some of its citizens there and seemed to act fairly swiftly to evacuate them as well as to place restrictions on travellers from China. But then you seem to have a stalling of the response where it took Indonesia then a very long time to admit there were cases within the country and to start to put in place uh, responses. So how does the bureaucracy intervene between that first rapid response and then the, the much slower follow-up to the situation within Indonesia? When the president finally declared that there were cases in Indonesia, that was understood by public as, how would I put it? People like saying to each other, see, this is what happened, right? The government has tried to cover it for so long. While people may have that kind of impression, what I understand, reflecting my time in the government, I believe that there are plenty of considerations. What ifs? There are many of what ifs. What if the people do the reality? What if the bureaucracy, do we think the machinery of government is ready? M- many, many considerations, I believe. I'm not putting an excuse, neither am I justifying what the government did, no. What I'm trying to say is this kind of response. To be fair, everyone in the world is overwhelmed with this, right? But the ability to quickly respond in the crisis, the ability to really take action is what saves lives. And I think the outtake after that, so after uh, evacuating people from Wuhan, was done in a much slower manner because the bureaucracy, the formalism within the bureaucracy, you need to confirm this before you can do this. Do we have any regulatory framework in place before we can do this or that? Things like that really, it's really in the way. I guess, you know, certainly anyone who's followed Indonesian politics would be aware of the bureaucratic nature of, of government. Uh, there and with your experience as the deputy chief of staff of the president in the past, you'd know better than any academic. But it seems like that's not a challenge unique to Indonesia. Um, no. Certainly, if we look across Southeast Asia, many bureaucratic governments, and, and yet Indonesia now has the highest death toll in Asia outside of China. I mean, is the bureaucracy simply slower in in Indonesia or are there sort of other unique challenges in Indonesia that account for that high death toll that we now see? Let me get back to one important point, what I learned, what I understand working with the government. Unless you have regulatory framework in place, unless you have institutional setting, and unless it is clear how you will be held accountable, you cannot do anything. While this may sound logic, methodological, this sound proper, but in a crisis situation, this can really slow things down. One, you can see since the government regulation in lieu of law and also government regulation on the health emergency, before the president declared national disaster status on this COVID, Even it is very, very difficult for local government, for example, to propose for large-scale social distancing, for example. This is how I would say that regulatory frameworks or bureaucracy is hampering the process. You can see that only recently we have finance minister regulations that can speed up the process of importing medical supplies 
previously, they were still done business as usual. They are still taxed, very strict rules on importing, even for medical supplies in emergency situations. I think those who understand the real challenge, they try to do their job as best as they could. But again, if you are sitting as a bureaucrat, if you are sitting as a policymaker within the government, then you have to be really, really careful. So I think bureaucracy is not the only factor that contributes to the slow response, which in the end also contributes to the high number of victims. There are also other factors, uh, you know, culture, geographical spread, many other things. But to me, understanding the dynamics, I think unless we can really address bureaucracy problems or challenges here, I think combating COVID-19 would be a real, real challenge for Indonesia. Yeah, if I, if I think about the Australian example, obviously we have a much smaller population, a smaller number of states, but we nevertheless have different levels of government with authority over different things like you would have in Indonesia. But the government was very quickly able to put together a national cabinet involving the prime minister and the heads of each state to, to coordinate decision making. That seemed to be much slower in Indonesia. Again, is that simply a question of bureaucracy and lacking frameworks? Or, or is there a lack of urgency, I guess, among the top decision makers to, to kind of act outside the existing regulatory framework issue new emergency regulations to set up new structures at, at the beginning of this COVID-19 response. In Indonesia, we have a task force led by National Agency for Disaster, BNPB, Pak Doni Monardo. I'm not sure how much uh, you are rather familiar with Indonesian context, but head of agency is not a minister, although they are at the ministerial level. So, in a national emergency or a national crisis like this, I expect that this kind of response would have been led by a leader or by authority much higher than a head of agency. In terms of institutional setting, in terms of bureaucracy, that will send a strong signal how important it is. Although it is now already corrected through the presidential decision, Capres number 12, uh, that was just uh, issued, declaring this is national emergency and elevate Padoni as head of PNPB, uh, disaster agency, to act as a national coordinator for this, reporting directly to the president. But still, from public policy perspective, from public administration perspective, I would think that the structure needed to tackle this pandemic should be made more agile at the same time, but also stronger and have authority to coordinate across ministries. We may not have any other example, except that I could refer back was the BRR in Aceh set up after tsunami 2004, which was led by Pak Kuntoro. The Reconstruction and Rehabilitation Agency, it was led by Pak Kuntoro, who was made at the same level as a coordinating minister, reporting directly to the president Yudhoyono at that time. And he was endowed with the power and authority to coordinate cross-ministerial, 
so that he can coordinate everything from importing materials, giving permissions for aids and assistance from outside Indonesia to come in, mobilize people, resources, everything, etc. I'm not saying that the current task force does not have this kind of power, but what I think that needs to be done is to strengthen this task force so that they can really plan, but also coordinate the execution and doing the evaluation and correction right at time in the in the field. They can just do monitoring. They can intervene. Basically, they are in love with all implementation authority. Why do you think the Jokowi government didn't establish a task force with greater authority from the outset, given, as you said, that model of BRR was available to them? Well, there are many explanations that I can give, but uh, probably one, the extent of the magnitude of the crisis was not this high as they expected or they predicted or they anticipated in the beginning, probably one. Second, and this is more likely, as far as I understand Pak Jokowi, I served him for five years in his first period, was that Pak Jokowi would like to have things simpler rather than making it more complex. Pak Jokowi disbanded many agencies and uh, institutions which he thought were not needed. So in my thinking, this is what is most probably happening. Pak Jokowi did not want to create new structure which would have new consequences. Uh, instead, he would want to make use the best, make use of existing structure. And what is available is uh, BNPB, the National Agency for Disaster Mitigation. You know, certainly in Australia, I don't think anyone could have named our chief medical officer two months ago and now everyone would recognize his face and his name in the in the US. We've seen uh, Anthony Fauci also becoming highly prominent through through really the daily press briefings that he's provided. Has, has there been, because, uh, you know, as far as I understand, Donnie Minardo is not a medical expert. Has there been a, sort of a, a chief medical officer or equivalent who, who has risen to prominence through this crisis, who, who is playing a, a leadership role in Indonesia there? In terms of health, the main actor is still the Ministry of Health. This is why the spokesperson for the crisis is from the Ministry of Health, Pak Ahmad Yurianto. So I see the role of Minister of Health and the ministry as a whole, as an institution, is, 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 is crucial. Now, I think with this COVID-19 crisis, we realize at least although it is obvious, but again, at least now we realize how vulnerable and how low our health system capacity. If I can cite some statistics, for example, per 1,000 people, we only have one hospital bed. We only have two beds in ICU for 100,000 people. We only have four medical doctors for 10,000 people. And two nurses for each 1,000 people. I think even if you go further and then you compare the health expense, you would still see Indonesia among the lowest. I think this is a wake-up call, not just for health sector, but for all sectors that concern people's life to really rethink 
the way they do development. In a larger context, uh, I would say that post-crisis, we need to really rethink of our national priority. You do have a decentralized political system in Indonesia with some capacity for both district and, and provincial governments to make their own policy. And you know, obviously, I think it's a, a key point to keep in mind, as you mentioned, that Indonesia has such limited health infrastructure compared to many of its neighbors. And I, I guess in, in recognition of that, where we look, for instance, to Jakarta with Governor Anis Baswedan there, keen to limit public transport to institute very strict controls on social distancing from the outset, uh, but, but being unable to gain central government approval. Because as I understand it, districts and provinces needed approval from the health ministry to, to yes. put in responses like social distancing. You know, obviously, when you've got around 500 districts and, and 30 odd provinces, you need a coordinated response. But how well do you think the Jokowi government has struck the balance between national coordination and allowing districts and provinces to, to tailor their response to the circumstances in their region? Uh, has, has the central government <laughs> been too obstructive of, of local policies? I think it is very difficult for the central government itself to have an effort to coordinate with the scale of uh, local governments, both provincial and municipal levels let alone with the decentralization. I think subnational governments uh, or head of the subnational governments, their main accountability lies with the people, with their constituents in the locals. So I can imagine, for example, province like West Java or like Jakarta or even like Yogyakarta where I live, when they have their own initiative to put more strict measures on the mobility of people, on the transport, or on the social distancing. And they want to request permission to the central government, and the central government reject. For example, this is what happened with Palangkaraya, if you follow the news. Palangkaraya sent requests to Minister of Health, and the Minister of Health replies that the Ministry of Health cannot give permission to Palangkaraya because one of the reasons is because the number of cases is not high enough. I can understand how the public would be furious reading this answer. Because the reason why Palangkaraya asked for large-scale social distancing is to prevent more deaths, is to prevent more cases, which exactly becomes the reason why their request was rejected because the number is still low. You, 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 you can see this, this tension, right? So I can see that the concern of local governments and the understanding of the central government, they do not always go together. The concern of the central government is that when you apply large-scale social distancing, then near lockdown, basically, then it will cost you more in terms of economy, in terms of social, in terms of many things. And the government, I think the worry or the concern of the central government is if we have this kind of lockdown or if we have this kind of massive large-scale social distancing, then there may be some unintended consequences. I think this is the, the, the way the central government thinks. Whereas the local government thinks more on how they can prevent the cases, 
how they can make sure that their health system is not overloaded, is still within their capacity if the outbreak happens in their region. I think it is more in this tension and this debate, Dave. So I agree that it is the question whether the central government has struck the right balance. I can say that not in all cases, but I think now with the dialogue being in place, so post Palankaraya, which raised public concerns, finally now the Ministry of Health is more open in the dialogue with the local governments. And I think now we can see that more provinces, more subnational governments get the permission to do large-scale uh, social distancing. You've discussed this problem of coordination between the national government and provinces in terms of policy, but of course there's also a political factor in that you know, Anis Baswedan, the head of Jakarta, would be expected to try to run for president in 2024. <laughs> so might Ridwan Kamil, the, the governor of West Java, another of the largest provinces. Has that made it more difficult to strike a coordinated response between these large provinces and the national government? To be frank, I don't see it as a concern at the moment. I think all local leaders that you mentioned, I think they have genuine intention and, and motives to really combat this pandemic let alone in the end, it is their own people who become victims. So I would not see it as a political contestation here, no. What I see is more on the technical approach, more on the bureaucracy, more on the coordination. I may be wrong, but I think then if post-crisis this still happens, then people maybe have more legitimate reason to start questioning. But in the middle of the crisis, no. I think what will happen would be post-crisis, every area in Indonesia, every municipal, every cities, every provinces, and together as a nation, we would have to restart what we have done. As we can see, this COVID really reset all the achievement that has been achieved uh, over the past five years. You name it, economic growth, poverty, inequality, job creation or employment, everything. It's now like being reset from zero. We have to restart again. So I think in Pak Jokowi's second period after this pandemic, I think what remains is for him to really get back the foundation right, to really rethink about the national priority in his second term. I'm afraid to say that probably Pak Jokowi would not be able to live a grand legacy. But if he managed to deal with this COVID crisis, if he managed to deal with the post-crisis management, then he will leave perhaps the most important legacy, which is the country's preparedness to unforeseen disaster like this, I think. Because after that, 2022 onwards, people will start about 2024. This is where the real politics, I think, will really take place. But not now. I don't think so. Do you think corruption has hampered Indonesia's response to COVID-19 so far? Interestingly, this is the, among the first concerns which appeared after the president declared the government regulation in lieu of law and government regulation on health emergency. Because the government regulation in lieu of law is basically about relaxing all economic measures. We want to make it easier for people to import commodities, to import medical supplies, relaxing tax, etc. 
including reallocation of state budget, not only the central government, but also local government, ministers as well. The first concern which appeared and I was invited to a discussion was about the potential for corruption. Because, for example, at the local government, the subnational, the reallocating of budget, it is not clear how we conduct the audit. It is not clear the mechanism, the procedure. Money that were previously allocated for political events, like, for example, Pilkada, the local government uh, election, for example, are now being used for COVID. I'm not saying that there is no mechanism to ensure transparency, but you can understand that in a crisis situation like this and a massive reallocation of budget, the chance, the opportunity, the possibility for corruption is not getting lower, but getting higher. So this is the concern. Whether or not it directly hampers Indonesia's response to COVID-19, so far there have been no official reports. The head of the Anti-Corruption Commission already said, I think, in the newspaper a while ago that those who are found guilty of corruption during this pandemic would face death penalty. But so far, until now, I haven't seen, we haven't seen any reports about corruption in response to this COVID-19. There are some concerns, like, for example, the amount of money that was promised to be received by uh, people in JAMSOS, in BANSOS, in the social protection, the value of package, the value of aids being distributed to the people, and the actual uh, items that the people received, for example, is different. You may have followed in the news that the value that was promised by the government is around 600,000 rupiah, but when people really receive the package and then they check what is inside or what uh, what were inside, they revaluated this less than, even less than half, for example. So there, there have been cases, and I think KPK is following it up. Now, you've mentioned that Jokowi's legacy could become the manner in which he sort of responds and leads Indonesia out of this COVID-19 crisis. How do you see things at present? How great a threat does this COVID-19 crisis pose to his government's legitimacy? Let me put it this way. This pandemic already brought about economic recession. And we learn from history everywhere in the world that economic crisis, economic recession usually lead to political crisis. I think Indonesia is no exception. But if I see the configuration of the current government, I think it is a bit too far to say that Pak Jokowi's legitimacy is being endangered by this crisis and post-crisis. I think we will face economic crisis. I think after this COVID-19, we will have to work hard because the poverty is getting bad again, because the economic growth is very low, people losing their job. Basically, Pak Jokowi and his cabinet has to rebuild the economy, just like what happened after 1998.
I think. Will this have some bearing on his legitimacy? Yes. But will this have a serious effect, for example, administration change? I don't think so. What I see would be more of effort of Pak Jokowi to make sure that the economic development is back on track. Of course, it will be very, very difficult. Pak Jokowi has target to attract investment more than 150 billion US dollar until 2024. I'm not sure whether we can really realize that. For sure, the economic growth will not be as high as it was predicted or it was expected, and so on and so forth. This certainly will be ammunition for opposition to hit, to fight, to attack Jokowi uh, administration. But it will not be sufficient to, if you like, to force Pak Jokowi to start aside. It is different compared to what happened in 1998 under Pak Harto. Very, very different. So I would think, on the contrary, that the way Pak Jokowi handled this crisis would be the legacy. So what I expect to see is actually more swift response, more coordinated response in this crisis and post-crisis, making sure that the economy is back up and running, make sure that the informal sectors, the poor, the small-medium economy, small-medium enterprise, they get the backups rebuilding the health and education sector, basically revisiting his five priorities that he mentioned in the beginning of his second period, recalibrating it. I think if he does it well, he may not leave a legacy like great economic growth or great infrastructure in place, but the legacy that he will leave would be the way a nation, the way a country which was struck by a disaster like this, back up and running. How would you assess his leadership performance so far during this crisis? As long as I know Pak Jokowi, both personally and in my personal capacity as his former deputy in the office of the president, Pak Jokowi is someone who is pragmatic in terms of that he wants to get things done. He is someone who would like to come with a solution rather than lengthy analysis. I'm not saying that Pak Jokowi is, is against or is anti-analysis, uh, no. But Pak Jokowi would prefer people come to him after explaining something happens, after providing analysis, but then coming up with a recommendation what needs to be done. I think uh, his leadership in handling this crisis, I can see it getting better and better day by day. He might seem to be rather distant in the beginning of this. He might be seen as to be too slow in making a decision. But as far as I notice, he himself took the podium and declared that we had positive case. I think it was on the 2nd or the 4th of March. And then gradually, I think he is stepping in as a leader who now is, I think he is now hands-on in dealing with this crisis. What about his health minister, Tarawan Agus Patranto? I mean, we've seen very extensive criticism within Indonesia of his performance for downplaying COVID-19, for not being transparent with data, 
um, for being obstructive of provincial initiatives. Do you think Jokowi perhaps should have fired him or, or <laughs> is it appropriate to keep him in place? Well, certainly this beyond my capacity, Dave, to, to answer this. What I understand is that the appointment of minister is a political appointment and it is the pure prerogative of the president. Sure, sure. Perhaps phrased differently then, do you think it's something that he would have contemplated firing a, a minister who the public has assessed is not performing in a crisis situation? What I think is that Pat Jokowi may give him better directives. I think this is what is badly needed at the time making sure that, for example, the data on COVID should be open and accessible for all. This is one of the most important. Yes, we are being updated with the number of cases, the number of deaths every day. But for the interest of research, we need to disaggregate those data. For example, on the deaths of this COVID-19, for example, how many of them are male, how many of them are female, what kind of comorbidities those victims have, for example, basic data that will help analyze the case. I think this is one. Second, to make sure that the Minister of Health is supporting the effort of the local government, not just to respond to the high number of victims, but also to prevent new cases. So I think the overall regulation on the large-scale social distancing need to be re-evaluated, for example. And then recently, if you read the latest edition of Tempo this week, it features Pak Terawan, the Minister of Health. One important aspect here is to make sure that the procurement of medical supplies should be made less bureaucratic because it is about life of people. So I think this is the kind of directives, is the kind of the conditions of, of a health ministers that Pak Jokowi should tell Pak Terawan. This is the indication of directives that the president should tell the minister of health, that the minister should do this, 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 and this. I, I, think, I think this is how I would put it. Okay, okay, sure, sure. Um, and you know, uh, perhaps... Finally, I mean, you, you've outlined there the directives that President Jokowi could give to his health minister. I mean, six weeks after Indonesia acknowledged its first case, there's not yet any sign of the curve of cases or of fatalities flattening. What more could the Indonesian government be doing now to, to deal with this crisis? There is a constant debate whether we should focus on testing more people or get people being treated. And I think we need to do both. If I can try to outline, Dave, there are two fronts here, two fronts and two dimensions. One is the health fronts, clearly strengthening the capacity of health system. This includes medical supplies. This includes medicine. This includes hazmat protection clothes for health workers. This includes capacity of hospitals, including all equipments. I think the immediate response needs to be addressed here. Second is in the, I would say, community or social front, which is actually strengthening the social fabric. We know we are doing physical distancing, a large scale, but we need to make sure that the most vulnerable are being supported. And I think Pak Jokowi has started a very good thing, which is reallocation of state budget to make sure that the social protection is getting better proportion. This 
has to be implemented. This has to be monitored at day-to-day basis. There should be no room for mistakes for this. Because a mistake means uh, life. So at the social front, it is one about social protection, but second, also to build the social cohesion. I would see the local initiative, subnational governments, is about basically building the social cohesion among the people at the kampung level. In my kampung here, Dave in Jogja, we are even doing lockdown. I live now in slope of uh, Merapi, in a village called Sindhu sub-village called Duko. In my Duko here, we do our own lockdown as well as other neighboring Duko. So if you go to neighborhood here in, in Jogja, many kampungs, they do their own lockdown, although there is no national lockdown. I think this is a social initiative that needs not to be criticized or not to be faced with protests from the central government, but it is a local initiative that we need to support. It is the society itself which in the end will bear the consequence if someone among them die because of the virus. So two fronts, one medical fronts or the health fronts, the second is the social front. I also mentioned two dimensions. One, the crisis dimension at the moment. I think all resources, all or most of the resources, most of the efforts need to tackle the crisis. But we also have to prepare for the second dimension, which is the post-crisis, which if we fail to anticipate what we need to do post-crisis, it will lead us to probably even worse situation. And that post-crisis of this uh, pandemic was economic crisis. So again, I think it would be good if Pak Jokowi, for example, asked Bapenas to start rethink about national priority post-crisis. He can ask Ministry of Finance about the posture of the budget post-crisis, how we will rework national priorities. I think that's important. Now, Pat Yanoir, there's a lot more I could ask you, but we're well and truly out of time. Um, thanks so much for sharing your insights in what is a, a very concerning time, both in Indonesia and globally. Thanks a lot for that. That was Dr. Yanoar Nugroho, former Deputy Chief of Staff to President Jokowi and a member of the Indonesian Young Academy of Sciences, ALMI. Dr. Nugroho is also currently a visiting senior fellow at the Isis Yusuf Ishak Centre, an honorary research fellow at the University of Manchester and a senior advisor to the Centre for Innovation, Policy and Governance in Jakarta. Talking Indonesia returns on 7 May with my co-host Dr. Gemma Purby. Until then, as always, you can access the entire archive of Talking Indonesia episodes for free at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.